Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The murder of Sean Fox in October 2022 sent shockwaves through society. This was a calculated, planned and ruthless execution. It was carried out in broad daylight and in the presence of others. Here was a man clinically gone down by two assassins in a crowded public place on a Sunday afternoon. He was shot multiple times by both gunmen. At one point, both gunmen stood over Sean, shooting him as he collapsed to the floor. The 42-year-old was murdered as he had a drink in Donegal Celtic Social Club off the Suffolk Road in West Belfast. The gunmen escaped on bikes, suggesting they didn't have far to go. The gunmen arrived carried out the murder and left the club in under a minute. It was the latest in a series of murders linked to drug dealing and the so-called Marbella crew. The Belfast Telegraph now understands that Sean Fox believed he was safe, as he was paying protection money to a dissident Republican organisation. But it now seems the money never reached them. There's been some speculation about the murder, the motive for Sean's murder. I want to be clear, there can be no justification or acceptable explanation for the murder of Sean Fox. Here to tell the story is our crime correspondent, Alison Morris. Alison, welcome back to Bell Tell. Can you remind us who was Sean Fox? So Sean Fox was, he was a native of West Belfast. He was a, a close friend and business associate of a guy called Jim J.D. Donegan. Jim J.D. JD Donegan was shot dead as he sat in his £80,000 Porsche outside St Mary's Boys Grammar School um, doing the, the school pickup in December 2019. At the time he was the, he owned a, a sort of secondhand car sales business but he was a lead member of what came to be known as the Marbella Crew um, because basically pictures of them online and that sort of quite exclusive Spanish resort, their love of flash cars, fancy holidays, got them to tag the Marbella Crew. When J.D. Donegan was killed, there was shockwaves, I suppose, in that sort of criminal underworld because many of them believed that they were safe because they had been paying protection money to a certain faction of dissident republicanism, a faction that would be have been associated, I suppose, in the past with the, the NLA. 
Um, and it turns out that these gunmen had no interest in what money, protection money they were paying elsewhere. J.D. Nungan was shot dead. His associates for a while went to ground and then they slowly started coming back again. Sean Fox took over J.D. Dunnigan's business. He took over J.D. Dunnigan's car business um, and he also moved into his house on in Lisburn and had been living there. And as you said, he was, he'd been a former footballer. He'd been quite a promising footballer when he was younger and he had played for the Donegal Celtic. He played for the DC. He had family connections, that club going back many, many years. And he was sitting in the social club of it. There was a football match on. The bar was heaving. Apparently it was over 100 people in the public bar, around 20 sitting in the vicinity where he was sitting when two gunmen dressed very casually in, in tracksuit bottoms and hooded sweatshirts walked into the bar and they shot him 20 times in front of horrified onlookers, including several of his own relatives who were drinking in the bar at the time. And then they turned and they left. And for the, the time when they're seen on CCTV walking through the front doors of the DC until the times when they're seen leaving was 21 seconds. That's how long it took. Um, both of them emptied their, their guns into Deshaun Fox and then they left. We later were told, shown CCTV that they had came to the scene on bicycles. It left them in a nearby alleyway and they left and then left on those bicycles and were never seen again. Those bikes haven't been recovered. The guns haven't been recovered. There's been a few arrests, but no one has been charged in connection with that. Just a few things coming from that. He moved into John, uh, JD Donegan's house and he took over his business. Yeah. I can assure you after my death, none of my mates are moving into my house. That seems totally bizarre to me. Or taking over his business, which many believe was just a front for money laundering. You know, that it, um, it, there's, a, there's a pattern here. We've had other murders, people like Warren Crossan, who were shot down in very similar circumstances. Um, we see it with a lot of the, the, especially the Southern criminals, they own secondhand car businesses. You know, it's how they use as a sort of front, as a legal front to, to launder their money. So um, I don't know whether it's, it clearly wasn't the wisest move for Sean Fox to do that. The, the questions that arose since then was, what was somebody who was seen to be a major player in the drugs trade? To the point where last, a year before his death, he had taken to Facebook because his name had appeared on a list of drug dealers going, you know, never mind where I get my cars from, I'm, I'm not a drug dealer. I publicly denied that he was a drug dealer. He knew and he had known and he'd been informed on several occasions that he was under threat. What would a person like that be doing sitting in a social club in West Belfast and that was the bit of the puzzle that I suppose didn't make much sense to me at the time. I knew that a lot of those people from that Marbella crew and those other drug dealing gangs are paying off certain factions of distant republicanism but I also know that the people who are responsible for these attacks which we've been told you know there's either there's either one hitman operating alone or operating in pairs that they are responsible for up to seven murders since 2014 and so if you take it like that and you know how dangerous these people are, why would you risk your life to sit in the Donegal Celtic Social Club on a Sunday afternoon? And these gunmen were cool, calm, collected. Uh, I have to use the word professional. That Clearly, it wasn't their first outing as assassins. Clearly, there is one or two very dangerous people hunting down people connected to the drug trade in, in West Belfast. So again... He must have known that. It was an execution and the the other killings were carried out quite similarly. I mean, if you know the geography of the place, you'll understand this. If you don't, I'll try and quickly explain. The the, the Suffolk Road where the Donegal Celtic is runs parallel then to the Glen Road. The Glen Road, if you keep following down the Glen Road, you will come to St Mary's School where J.D. Donegan was killed. 
both of those you can you there are entrances from the Glen Road and from the Suffolk Road into the Lanadoon estate. So on both occasions, in the case of JD Donegan, one lone gunman wearing a high res vest, looked like a, a workman, a game of the rucksack on his back, you'd have thought literally a guy going to work walks casually from the Lanadoon estate, is seen on several occasions on CCTV, walking down the Glen Road, walks over to J.D. Donegan, who is sitting at, what, half three in the afternoon on a school pickup in front of, you know, uh, school staff, pupils, parents, walks over, shoots him, I think it was up to eight times in the head, executed, you know, kills straight away at the scene, and then jogs off into the Lanadoon estate and is never seen again. No one has been charged in connection with that. On this occasion, we have the gunmen working in powers, and they're seen very casually dressed. They don't look at all as if they are nervous or anything, walking into that club and coming out after 21 seconds, after literally executing someone in front of a crowded bar. They walk straight to Sean Fox. They knew where he was. They knew where he was sitting. They knew who their target was. Um, the police had said that other people could have been injured. It, there was people sitting quite close to him. Nobody else was, was injured apart from him. They went into that bar to take Sean Fox's life and to make sure that he wasn't walking out of their life. Um, and on that occasion, and as you said, he had taken over from the business. He was living in the house of J.D. Donegan. All of that would have made any person think, well, I will stay out of dangerous areas such as West Belfast if I'm under threat, and he wasn't. And so the final piece of the jigsaw of that was, why does Sean Fox feel so confident that he's able to sit in the D.C. drinking on a Sunday afternoon? It has since emerged that associates of Sean Fox and relatives are obviously very keen to know he was responsible for his murder. You know, he was a 42-year-old father. He was, you know, he had very devoted parents. He has children. Um, and also there are people who are associated with him who, let's face it, for their own self-interest, wanted to know, wanted to know how he ended up dead when it was their understanding that he had been paying protection money and had thought that he would be fine. So the question is, what, what happened? What went wrong? And that's what they're trying to find out because they could be next. So if you thought, I'm going to be next in this hit list, I'm paying money to X, Y and Z. If Sean Fox was paying money to X, Y and Z and he's dead, why am I bothering, first of all, paying this money when it's clearly not protecting me? Or if not, what went wrong and why was he then shot dead? What did go wrong? How would he have gone about setting something like this up? He had went through an intermediary, someone who he thought could put him in contact with him. He had asked, could he pay them off? What, what were they looking from him and in the weeks before his death I was told a sum of £5,000 was handed over he believed that that was making its way to the people who ended up killing them that money never reached them they claimed to have known nothing about it and so the question remains where did that money go? It's my understanding that they never asked for any money the money didn't go to them and he was left really a sitting duck in, in a condition where he thought he was protected from them Sometimes you, you hear these cases and you, you wonder when people are still under threat, why didn't they go somewhere else? But for many people, their lives and their social lives and their family lives are connected to a single place. And no matter what, they don't feel that they can walk away from that. It's very interesting because I've known other cases like this in the past, say during the Troubles, when you talk about those direct action against drugs killings. So they had a whole spate of those coming near the end of the Troubles um, where a number of, of significant drug dealers were, were murdered at that time. And I know that after that, a lot of people then maybe would have left the country or went somewhere. But it's very difficult for someone. And I just, I, I suppose, trying to put this in some context, if you are someone who is making their living, through the sale of drugs and through criminality 
you're living a lifestyle that would be above and beyond your means if you had a normal nine to five job. Um, you have a connection of people who are living quite similar, sort of hedonistic lifestyles. And your business and how you do business is all intertwined into that small group of people. And people become, I suppose, a very big fish in a small pond very quickly. And they get used to that and they get used to that style of life. If you take them out of that style of life and you say, plop them in a house in state in England somewhere and say, live there, you'll be safe. You may well be safe. But all of a sudden, your life as you know it is no longer in that manner. Even, um, you know, people who have moved to Spain, say, you know, we used to call it you know, the Costa del Crime and people who moved over there, they realised quite quickly that, you know, there are much, much bigger gangsters operating in those pools than they are. And all of a sudden, their, their world comes crumbling down around it. They don't have, you know, the, the adoration. They don't have the sort of team of young runners hanging around them, of young men who want to be like them, who are aspiring to that sort of criminal lifestyle that they think that they can achieve. Um, and when they lose all that, I think very quickly it starts unravelling and that's where you see people putting themselves in very dangerous situations and coming back to a place where they know they're potentially under threat, but they think, well, is my lifestyle worth the risk? Now, I'm sure that dissident Republicans would passionately deny that their movements benefit from drug dealing. I mean, I think that we as journalists, you, you, we use the word dissident Republican, we use it too widely to capture too broad a sense. If you were maybe someone who was a Republican in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, even the 90s, and you simply disagree with Sinn Féin's political strategy, you think that that is not the way to achieve a united Ireland, but you don't believe, and many don't believe, that violence is the way either. And many of those, especially those who have some kind of, you know, political thinking or mind on them will go, well, we can see that there's a strategy now towards United Ireland, but they disagree with Sinn Féin because they don't believe that they're upholding, you know, the true socialist um, principles that they would have had in the, in the past. That's fine. That's called dissident republicanism, but it's not, it has any, no links to violence of any kind whatsoever. Um, you then have people who would have been linked to those um, those post-Good Friday Agreement, distant Republican groups, groups like the, the Real IRA and groups like that, who did believe that the time for armed struggle still existed at that time and have since thought, well, no, we can see that, you know, in, in modern terms, you know, shooting or bombing, you know, two or three times a, a week in a, or a, a year and a, a bomb that doesn't go off or that is never going to achieve our aims. But they have still retained their armed structures, they've still retained their leadership and they still have weapons. Now, what are those weapons for? Um, you know, they're no longer considered in many cases a threat to national security. So if we take a group like Oglin Hearn, they were at one stage very active. They were involved in, you know, a bomb at Palace Barracks, uh, you know, a bomb at the right where we're sitting right now, I'd say the policing board at one time. That group is officially on ceasefire, but that group has not decommissioned and clearly they also have not, you know, disbanded their structures. So what do they retain those groups for? What do they retain those structures for? Well, in many cases, it's protection. So if you were involved in attacking, you know, people who were uh, members of, of a criminal gang or a drug dealing gang, well, they can always come back and have retaliation against you. So they keep it for that and they keep it for protection against the potential attack from other groups. Um they're no longer, I suppose, directly on MI5's radar because they're not threatening the state, if you like. They're not threatening to shoot police officers or soldiers or prison officers. But that's not to say that members of those organisations don't have the capability to kill people who are involved in the drugs trade. And in some of those killings, what we've found is that the person 
was linked to someone who had been shot previously and then they had decided that they were going to go out and tell everyone that they were going to avenge their friend's death and then they get themselves a reputation as someone who is a potential threat to people and then they find themselves on a hit list from that direction. So you get two things, someone who's considered a very high-level player in the drugs trade who becomes a, 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 a target because of that or someone who then says, well, I'm going to go out and avenge that person who you shot. So in the case of... Um, of let's say Warren Crossan, who is one of the people who have been killed, we believe, by the same gunmen responsible for the Sean Fox killing. His father was Tommy Crossan, who was the leader of the continuity IRA, someone I had many dealings with in the past because of my, my job as a security journalist. Um, he was shot dead, as he said, he run like a fuel yard, like an illegal fuel yard in, um, in West Belfast. He was shot, as he said, in a, a hut at the, the side of that. Warren Crossan would have been a very young man at that time, but all of a sudden became the man of the house. Warren then became a big operator in the criminal underworld, and I mean a big operator dealing with people like Cornelius Price, who died just this week. He was threatening to avenge his father's death. So Warren Crossan was not necessarily targeted for being a drug dealer. Warren Crossan was targeted because he was then someone who had access to guns, and those people thought that he might be a threat to them. His friend, Mark Hall, who police have since told us there's a connection, a direct connection between Mark Hall's murder and the murder of Sean Fox because they know the same one of the same weapons was used in that killing. Mark Hall was the same. Mark Hall then said, well, I'm going to avenge my friend Warren Crossan. I know who it was killed him. I'm going to take them out. I'm going to kill them. And that then put him on their on their sites and on the hit list. So, and also then you have like a wall of silence around this. You know, the police told us there was over 100 people in the DC at the time of um, Sean Fox's killing, it's my understanding that almost none of those have given a statement to police or cooperated. So clearly, Sean Fox believed he was safe. Wherever this money was going, and we do understand it was going to some sort of dissident Republican group, or supposed to anyway, but clearly that was of no concern to the people who took Sean Fox's life. Can we speculate on where that money might have ended up? At this point in time, you know, I there's a, a fairly robust investigation by associates of Sean Fox to try and work out where that money went because clearly it's in their best interest to find out because they are people who are also paying protection money and believe themselves to be safe as a result of that. So they're very keen to know where the money went. Um, as far as I know as well, you know, members of Mr Fox's family have also inquired as to why he believed he was safe and who had given those reassurances that he would be safe in West Belfast. Um, and all of this is going to become quite messy, I imagine, very soon, because if it turns out that this isn't an isolated case and there's other cases where someone has been taking money and saying that they're passing it on and that money is not going to where it's meant to go, well then is someone else either benefiting selfishly for self-gain or are they passing it on to a different organisation but not the one that murdered Sean Fox. So then you have a whole load of questions that are going to come from that. It, it, it's it's a very messy situation. You can understand too, you know, regardless of what um, Sean Fox may or may not have been involved in in his life, he still has a family and he still has family who are grieving. Um, and obviously for them, this is a very difficult time. And the problem is that if we go right back to 2014 to that Tommy Crossan murder and we work our way through the list of people. So you have Tommy Crossan, you have a son, Warren Crossan, you have Warren Crossan's friend, Mark Hall, you have J.D. Donegan, you have J.D. Donegan's friend, Sean Fox. And then we have two men called, one called Kieran Wiley and one called um, Danny McLean, who were 
former members of distant Republican groups but fell foul of them and all of these people are thought to have been killed by the same either gunman or gunmen and not one person's been charged with any of those so if it was your loved one you wouldn't you wouldn't be feeling too optimistic that you were going to get any kind of judicial justice in the very near future. Do we have any update as how the as to the police investigation into these killings? Yeah, I have um, been in touch with the police and I have asked them, um, could I have an interview with the investigating officer to see where they are with that? And they responded with, unfortunately, it is not possible to facilitate your request at this time. So the police aren't saying too much. Clearly, um, they have their own lines of inquiry, but, and I'm going to say, you know, in fairness to them, it is very difficult when you have no gun, no witnesses, no getaway car, um, so even if you have intelligence that might earmark potential suspects, intelligence isn't evidence and you can't charge anyone on intelligence and gathering evidence in these kind of cases is very difficult because these are not spur of the moment crimes. This isn't someone killing someone, you know, in a fit of anger and even forensics all over the place. These are very carefully calculated and planned crimes and therefore not just the, the, the run up to them is planned carefully, but the clean up after them is planned carefully. And it leaves police, I think, meeting a lot of dead ends when they go looking for evidence then. Alison Morris, crime correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.